Welcome to Scientific American's Science Talk, posted on March 21st, 2017. I'm Steve Mursky. Can biology teach us anything about how to survive in the business world? On March 17th, an essay appeared on the Scientific American website, making the case that, quote, biological systems offer valuable lessons on how to manage under extreme uncertainty. And these are some uncertain times, all right. The authors of the article, Building a Resilient Business Inspired by Biology, are Martin K. Reeves and Simon Levin. I spoke to them by phone. Martin, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and and what your day job is? So I'm Martin Reeves. I'm a senior partner with the Boston Consulting Group, and I run something called the BCG Henderson Institute, uh, which is our think tank for new approaches to strategy and management, uh, uh, borrowing and developing ideas from beyond business, and in this case, from the sciences. And Simon? I'm the professor at Princeton University in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. My PhD is in mathematics, and I've been interested for more than a half a century in applying that mathematics to solving problems of the world. I began applying it to problems in biology and still do that and ecology and evolutionary biology. And I hooked up with um, with Martin um, five or six years ago, um, and we meet about once a month to talk about issues of common interest and what we can learn from each other. And hopefully he's um, learned a bit from the perspectives I bring, but I've certainly learned a great deal from um, thinking about what goes on in the business world and what I can learn from that that helps me in the other work I do. You have a very interesting piece that came out Friday on the Scientific American website that's co-authored by both of you. And the first thing you talk about is how the standard operating model for global enterprise is under threat right now. And let's talk about that a little bit so that we can set up what your prescription is uh, yeah, so what we mean by the, uh, the standard operating model being under threat is that globalization, which essentially is global economic integration, has had an enormous effect on uh, value generation, wealth generation uh, over the past couple of decades. And uh, essentially, um, it, it's, it's an economic arbitrage. It's the ability to uh, produce things at the point of lowest cost and then connect them with markets. Uh, using reliable logistics and, and IT. And that, that has reached a very high degree of sophistication and has resulted in uh, a lot of uh, manufacturing capacity located in, uh, in, in East Asia. And there are really two things to say about the, the state of play there. One of them is that, um, is, is that the, the nature of globalization is changing. And uh, one of the forces that's changing that is the equalization of, uh, of, of labor costs. Um, so uh, producing in the Yangtze Delta used to be uh, a very advantaged thing to do if you factor in uh, inflated labor costs uh, and logistical costs, um, then, then actually um, it, it, it's virtually no longer the case. Um, and then you've got a couple of other sort of forces which are reshaping the game. Um, uh, one of them is a backlash against economic uh, inequality that has been created within nations as a result of trade. Another one is how Technology is transforming the productivity of production so that we need uh, less labor um, for every dollar invested in, in, in production. And another one has been the rise of data of services. So the game is, uh, is changing. Um, and uh, the, the unfortunate thing is that 
we're sort of at an inflection point in that change process where uncertainty is very, very high. It's difficult to say uh, how fast and, and how far some of these changes will go. Uh, and that's why the standard operating model is, is, is under threat. And that's why Simon and I got interested in the idea of could we learn some lessons from biology as to how to cope with that situation. And you'd talk about six lessons that biology offers. And uh, people can read the article, but I thought it might be interesting to just go through them uh, relatively quickly and, and talk about what these biological lessons are and how they could be applied in the business world. Several of these principles are ones that um, um, we, we've been investigating for a while. And, and let me talk about the first few, and then Martin can talk about um, some of the others. Um, when designing systems to, uh, or when systems have evolved in order to be robust and to be able to continue functioning in the face of a fluctuating environment, there are a number of features we find um, that um, uh, are absolutely essential. The, the first three I uh, wanted to talk about are the degree of redundancy in the system, the degree of heterogeneity, and the degree of modularity. In the design of any system, one has to have some fallback in case uh, one gets failure. Systems are designed or have evolved or have self-organized to have a level of redundancy in the system. As an example, we we lost the uh, American chestnut from many of the forests in the northeast of the U.S., but the forests kept functioning because chestnut, oak, and other species came in and picked up the slack, filling some of the same roles that the American chestnut had filled. In the same way, if you design an airplane or or a company, you want to have some redundancy in the features so that when you get failure of an element, uh, the whole thing doesn't go down. Redundancy also gives you the opportunity for innovation, like when you get a gene, du- a gene duplication, and the, the new copy of the gene has the opportunity to go off in another functional direction while the, the original copy of the gene continues to fulfill its perhaps uh, basic function that's, that's necessary to carry on life. Oh, that's true, but that's also where, where heterogeneity and diversity comes in. That's how evolution works. Uh, that's how the um, influenza virus has managed to persist, for example, for such a long period of time. It's constantly innovating. It's constantly mutating, producing uh, new variants that uh, uh, can take the place of, of, of the old ones as, as selection and, uh, in particular, the development of the immune response makes the, the original strains no longer functional. So we've argued also for the importance of heterogeneity and the ability to innovate and the importance of maintaining that kind of variation within companies. Martin uh, can give give you multiple examples of companies that have failed to innovate and therefore have have declined or, or disappeared. The third feature that I wanted to emphasize is the degree of modularity in the system, compartmentalization. When we look, for example, at the spread of an infectious disease, uh, it doesn't sweep entirely through a population immediately. It sweeps through particular risk groups and then is limited um, in its spread to other risk groups. Those may be geographic risk groups or it may be behavior, but in any case, the spread of an infectious disease is limited in the same way that one would build a fire break uh, in order to limit the spread of, of a forest fire. Well, evolution has 
if you will, learned about this. And modularity is something by which I mean the separation of the system into different components that interact strongly with themselves, but much more weakly with other components. Evolution has selected for these, and this not only protects them against collapse, but facilitates the ability to, to rapidly innovate. Uh, these modules create building blocks for future innovation. So those three features are the first ones I want to emphasize. They're the first three on the list in the paper. Moving on to the, to the other three, the diversity in the system, the heterogeneity gives it the ability to adapt to change. And one of the points we've been emphasizing is the importance of, for companies, um, and for societies, if you will, to be innovative and adaptive, not to respond to perturbations too rigidly. Uh, and that ability to keep learning and adapting is essential for the survival over a longer period of times of, of, of the organization. Martin, why don't, why don't you talk about prudence and embedness? Yeah, so uh, the other two principles that we dealt with, one is uh, prudence, which is a, a sort of just-in-case principle. Um, so, for instance, in the case of the immune system, being able to uh, adapt to uh, the smallest of threats and to be able to remember every previous threat, not necessarily a very efficient setup, but a very prudent setup against uh, uh, the possibility of future attacks. And um, the other one is um, uh, em embeddedness. And what we mean by that is that... Um, Biological systems and business systems and many systems are not single complex adaptive systems. They're actually systems embedded within systems. Um, so, for example, the uh, um, uh, employees are embedded in teams, are embedded in a company, are embedded in a, uh, a multi-company ecosystem, are embedded in an economy, are embedded in society. And the point about embeddedness is that um, to have a, uh, a stable, resilient system, uh, there needs to be a reciprocity and embeddedness in the in the larger systems uh, to uh, uh, to sustain uh, the systems at lower levels. Now, the interesting thing about these principles is um, that they're sort of counter to the common sense of uh, many managers, perhaps, because we could state these these words in uh, in different terms. We could say redundancy is inefficiency, uh, heterogeneity is lack of standardization, modularity is uh, silos or compartmentalization. Um, uh, adaptivity is, is a failure to completely optimize. Um, uh, prudence is inefficient, and uh, embeddedness is getting confused about um, you know whose benefit the system is designed for. But the point is that um, under, under situations of high uncertainty, of high change, um, we need to think about not just how good is the game from a selfish perspective, um, from a more typical business perspective. We need to think about um, how long. Uh, will the game last? And therefore, we need to actually think in terms of exploration as well as exploitation, uh, mutualism, uh, in addition to, uh, to to benefit to extraction. So we think these principles are uh, fairly powerfully applicable right now to the uh, evolution of uh, global uh, trading trading arrangements, and that's essentially what we talked about in the uh, in the article. That's a really interesting point that they could all be looked at in a negative way if you're. Uh... If you're coming from a different perspective, but speaking of a, a different perspective, um, one of the things I kept thinking about as I read the article was that evolution doesn't care if the individual survives. It only cares about, well, it doesn't care about anything, but uh, it's it works so that uh, the, the system itself may 
form a a new kind of equilibrium out there with whatever resources are are then available but individuals may perish in the in the course of this process so this prescription seems to apply to the business world but an individual company applying some of these things may may optimize its uh its chances of survival but it it, it doesn't guarantee anything so let, let me um, let me take it present an alternative point of view on that, which is, um, as you point out, first of all, uh, evolution, of course, doesn't care. Um, the point has been made by the late evolutionary biologist Lawrence Slobotkin that evolution, if it's a game at all, is an existentialist game where the only payoff is being allowed to continue playing the game. And evolution, in a sense, just happens. It's a process. Uh, and in general, um, indeed, it is the individual and the individual genome where selection is strongest and the organization as a whole of which the individual is part may suffer as a result of it. That's indeed what we're seeing in our societies uh, in which global environmental problems, for example, and other uh, global problems are the unfortunate consequence of the fact that selection and decision-making are happening most strongly at much lower levels of organization. So it is indeed the individual that um, that's selected for much more strongly than the group. And when thinking, how does this apply to a company? Well, what that means is that uh, the hierarchical nature, the embeddedness that Martin talked about, means that from the viewpoint of the company, although one has to give a lot of potential for incentive and innovation to the individuals, one has to also recognize that the self-organization of this is not necessarily going to guarantee what's good for the company. And similarly, what's good for the company is not necessarily going to be good for the industry or for society as a whole. So that, that conflict between levels, as you point out, is a crucial distinction, but I think it actually works in the, the opposite of the way to what you suggested at first. It's... Um, uh, the forces tend to favor things at smaller scales. And that, in, in part, is what's leading to um, shorter lifespans of, um, of companies. They, as we pointed out in another article, they're not, they're not living as long. Companies are not. Uh, and that's because the people who are in charge are making decisions which heavily discount the long-term future. So a couple, a couple of additional comments on that. So I, I, I think my comment on yours would be that um, uh, we're talking at both levels, I think. I mean, at the level of the potential for global economic integration to add, to add further um, value to human welfare, I think we're saying that there's a sort of a bottleneck in the system, uh, which <coughs> is the, the, the need for uh, the, the arrangements for global economic integration to reinvent themselves. And so we're talking about, you know, how these principles apply to that. And then at the level of individual companies, we, we do have, um, unlike in uh, evolution, we do have uh, intentionality. Um, uh, CEOs and shareholders certainly care about the survival of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a particular company, um, uh, even if you could argue in aggregate that, uh, that company turnover is a good thing. And a company, of course, is a population of ideas and businesses uh, and people. So how we manage um, that diversity and that heterogeneity is absolutely relevant to the survival of, of each unit, too. How do you convince the leaders of organizations to embed redundancy in their system when, as you point out, 
it may be inefficient and may not appear to be helping the bottom line in any near future sense? Well, I think a couple of years ago, that might have been a, a tough question. In fact, it was it was a tough question. Um, uh, you know, when things are going well and they're relatively stable, I think uh, the optimization of, of, of the existing model is, um, is sort of the obvious thing to do. Um, I think now it's... Uh, uh, it's less, it's it's uh, probably there's more openness to the ideas that we talk about in this article simply because of the tremendous uh, levels of, of, of uncertainty. Um, you know whether we apply a border adjustment tax in the U.S. or not um, is uh, is uncertain. Uh, if we do, we know that it could uh, wipe out the uh, the profits of, of uh, companies that depend upon e- uh, imports, like retailers, for example, to a very high degree. Um, uh, uh, you know, if we do that, uh, we don't know what the reactions of trading partners will be. Um, so I think actually um, most uh, management committees and, and, and boards now really see this incredibly high degree of uh, uh, uncertainty in front of their eyes and are, and are taking action. So you could look at, um, for instance, Lloyd's, the insurance syndicate that's been doing uh, business for about 350 years, I think, in, uh, in London, uh, recently decided to... Uh, uh, open a, uh, a, a second center in, in continental Europe, uh, presumably uh, as a hedge uh, against an unfavorable outcome to, to Brexit. And of course, we simply don't know what the, uh, the, the out- outcome of the negotiations of, uh, of, of Brexit will be. So I'd say there's much more um, openness to these, uh, to these ideas right now. What does a layperson get from reading this article? Somebody who's not in the business world at all, maybe not even a professional scientist, but just somebody who's interested in science. One of the things I think they can learn is the the lessons that we've taken from biology for business are lessons that apply to many other aspects of our lives as well. And uh, I've been in discussions and thinking about how these ideas apply to the regulation of financial systems, to protecting our societies against various forms of um, terrorism, to the way that foundations and indeed universities ought to run. All of the same principles uh, apply. Um, And basically, if you don't keep uh, innovating and keep trying new things, eventually somebody's going to catch up to you, in in the words of the the late Satchel Page. and so I, I think that um, although we've taken the lessons directly to what it means for business, we need to think about these in many other aspects of our lives. Indeed, in the way we uh, individuals operate their own lives, they, um, if you don't keep learning and, and trying new things, um, you're going to go stagnant. I think just to, to complement what, what, what Simon said, um... Uh, an idea that we're, we're pursuing is, is what we're calling biological thinking, which is um, the idea that in problem solving generally, not just in, in, in business, perhaps if we've been brought up in, in, in relatively um, stable, uh, predictable times, uh, you know, relatively speaking, uh, we might be sort of hooked on an optimization paradigm, what we, what Simon and I uh, call mechanical thinking, whereby we think of cause and effect, we think about the ability to predict things, the ability to control things. I think these six principles also um, uh, essentially get at the essence of, uh, you know, how can you interact with um, events and, and systems uh, if you don't have full predictability and control, um, which would argue is most of the time in business life as well as in personal life. The exact quote by Hall of Fame pitcher Satchel Page is, don't look back, 
something might be gaining on you. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com. And we're also now bundling our daily 60-second science podcasts into weekly editions posted on YouTube, where you can enjoy them by subscribing to the Scientific American channel. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 